love riding my bike. I love running. I don't care what they think about it. I love it. At that point, when I knew I was going to win, chills just went up and down my entire body. I don't believe there are any good or bad foods. Food is food. I still feel so passionate about getting that record that I'm like, I'm just going to do it. As an athlete, I was like, what's my story or what's your story? What can you learn from it? And what can you teach people? Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. I'm Alyssa Gadeski, and I am joined back in the United States by my co-host, Haley Chura. Haley, welcome back to the US of A. Congratulations on your third place finish at the, what is it called? The Challenge Championship. The Challenge Championship um, you raced just like two days ago. I feel like it's been a whirlwind since that happened. Tell me about it from your perspective. Have Are you like, do you know what time zone you're in? Do you know what you've been doing over the last few days? Alyssa, no, I don't know what day it is. I don't know what time it is. I am so happy to be back in the United States. When I woke up this morning and I realized I was in my own bed, I was a little extra thankful. It was an incredible trip to Slovakia. I, if anyone didn't listen to last week's episode, I, I found out less than two weeks ago that I was an alternate for Team USA that I could go to Slovakia and be an alternate for Team USA in the Collins Cup. So that meant I was there ready in case anyone got sick or injured. Any of the six women who were racing for Team USA in that event got sick or injured, I would be ready to step in. So I traveled to Shamarin. I got all that stuff together very quickly, made it there. Wait, wait, wait. So I'm going to stop you right here. Okay. I'm going to stop you right, right there because I noticed in the coverage of the Collins Cup, all of a sudden everyone started calling it Shamarin. So can you please educate me? I had been saying Samarin up until when I started hearing on the coverage that it was not that. So when did the switch happen? I think it was always that way. I think it was like the English speakers figured it out <laughs> finally. But um, it, it the, the S... You know, the S when it's written in Slovak has like a, a little notation above it. I don't know what it's called. And that must make it like an SH sound, I'm guessing. But again, this is just from hearing okay. Slovakians actually say the name of of the town as Shamarin. So I'm calling it Shamarin. I do not know I, officially, but um, it's kind of like one of those things like you hear the people there say it long enough and you're like, okay, I have it wrong. I'm just going to start saying it this way. <laughs> it's probably why like sometimes I think learning a language, if you learn it by hearing it, like if you're in the place and you learn things by hearing it rather than reading it, you actually have less of an accent um, versus like when I've gone to South American countries that are Spanish speaking and I try to use my American high school learned Spanish and they just look at me like, what? Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is what a bad accent. <laughs> or they start laughing because I like have such a terrible accent. But um, but anyway, going back. Yes. So that's Shamarin, good to know. Thank Slovakia, you. Okay. That's good to know. All right. Which, Yes. On the, on the shores of the Danube river, uh, kind of, uh, it's only about 50 miles from Vienna, Austria. I didn't know that until I flew in there, but, um, ex bionic sphere hotel kind of resort sport resort area. So excellent place for a race. So I was there, you know, as an alternate for the Collins cup, like I said, which that race happened on Saturday. It was incredible. Alyssa, like team USA women just stepped up. Like it was so much fun to watch. It started in the afternoon. And so I was able to get my training in that morning and, um, kind of get, I had to check in my bike for my race on Sunday. I actually checked it all in. Everyone seemed healthy. I'm ready to go. They did not need an alternate. So I, I assumed, uh, Instagram slash cheering duties and kind of set myself up to watch the start of the swim. And I just didn't know how this would go off because it was, you know, three women at a time, one from Europe, one from team international, one from the U S um, 
each race, they had really great matchups, which we went through last week, which, you know, some were really good swimmers, some were really good cyclists, some were good all around athletes. And, um, and so how the course was set up, I got to watch the swim and then, so you watched, and then you watched the first matchup, which was Taylor Nib, Danielle Reef, Teresa Adam go off and then had a 10 minute break till the second matchup. And you could see the whole swim course. So you could kind of see, and it wasn't that surprising that Taylor Nib came out of the water ahead of Daniela and Teresa, just because Taylor's an ITU athlete. And I mean, but Daniela and Teresa are good swimmers. So I, I was surprised she had as big of a gap. I think it was more than a minute, um, that big of a gap, but, um, but then it was like, I, I, so I watched the swims go off and then I couldn't really see the bike course cause they went out of town and they rode on this highway. So I actually went back to my room, got some lunch and tried to kind of get into the coverage, which was harder to do in Slovakia than you would guess. I probably should have gone to like one of the VIP areas that had a screen, but I, um, I couldn't quite get on. So I was like texting with people and checking the results. And I'm like, are these times right? Like, does Taylor Nib really have eight? minutes on Daniela Reef and Teresa Adam, who are incredible cyclists. Like, I'm like, surely something is wrong with the GPS and with the timing system. And these are not right. So then I go downstairs and to watch them come off the bike. And I see Taylor come in on her road bike. She's smiling, looking great. And I like start a clock and I'm waiting and I'm like, Oh my God, it really is like eight minutes, um, eight to 10 minutes to watching Teresa and Daniela come in. And that was, that was the first shock of the day. I think the biggest, I mean, I, I don't know if it should have been a shock or not, but it was so incredible. And I know it was not Daniela's best day. It definitely was, but we we rarely see Daniela Reef falter. And, um, and same, you know, Teresa Adam has, she, I talked to her before and she had been coming off illness and hadn't been training and, and she admitted she was racing on talent and, um, and this was such a big event that even, but these are women who are so strong that even when they race on talent with less than ideal conditions, you know, or less than ideal prep, you still know it's going to be a strong race. And Taylor Nib just, I mean, she, we talked to her a few weeks ago and was like, oh, wow, you did amazing in Boulder. And she just gets stronger and stronger as she races. And she, I talked to her afterwards and she is not done. I think she's planning to go to Hamburg and the Bahamas and Abu Dhabi. So her season's just getting started, but incredible racing by Taylor. I mean, the other matchups, we had Katie Zafiris uh, come in not too far behind Lucy Charles Barkley for second in, and Paula Finley right after Katie in that second match. And Katie, I know, is on her way to London for Super League this weekend. I think they, Alyssa, they go London this weekend, Munich next weekend, Jersey in the Channel Islands the weekend after that, and then Malibu the weekend after that. So four weekends in a row a lot of travel in between it's a I mean, lot of racing. Yes. Yeah. I, like, again, I said, things were just getting started for some of these athletes. Um, and then, you know, and, and the full matchups, you can definitely go look at the results. You can re see the coverage, but you know, Jocelyn McCauley, Chelsea Sidero, both coming off maternity leave, not having a ton of racing under their belt had incredible races. I mean, it was just, that was so cool to see. Um, I think, you know, we saw like true long course athletes like Carrie Lester really holding their own. And it was so inspiring. And so on Sunday, even though I wasn't racing the exact same course, it was, um, it was definitely a very, it was similar. The bike course was similar. It was a little bit longer. It was on the same highway. And then the run was, was different. We, I did a three loop run within the X bionic sphere, property. So it was a lot of turns, a lot of different surfaces, grass, like running on like horse 
areas, <laughs> equestrian facilities. I don't know. We ran a loop around the stables. It was like, it was fascinating, but, um, but it was a lot of different surfaces. And, but we did do this one out and back that the Collins cup athletes had done. And so I, it was kind of a cool thing for me to have watched them the day before and, um, and seen like how quickly that, that loop went. And I was like, okay, even though it feels long, it's going by quick. Like just think that you're, you know, Taylor Nib or think that you are Jackie Herring who had an incredible run, um, you know, and watching how, I mean, just getting to watch these elite athletes that we've interviewed, the Annie Haugs, the, uh, Jeannie Metzler, um, you know, Holly Lawrence had a crash and got back up and that was getting to actually watch them. I know we get to watch them a little bit when we race, but kind of be on the sidelines watching them was so inspiring. And so that was what I was thinking about on Sunday was like channel my team USA um, teammates and, and try to get the most of myself. And, and it was, it was a good day for me. I ended up third and the conditions were a little bit different for us on Sunday. The swim was so choppy. It was so choppy, which is probably good for me, but, um, and windy on the bike. And then the run, I was just so thankful that it was not as hot as Coeur d'Alene. That was not lost on me when I was running. I was like, <laughs> this is much more pleasant temperature than uh, the, my last race. So I was thrilled, thrilled to come in third behind uh, Lucy Hall and Sarah Perez Sala, um, who had incredible, incredible races. And so I'm, I'm back in the US. I made it back. My COVID test was negative. Thank goodness. International travel is not easy these days, but I'm thankful to be home, reunited with Cowboy and recovering like a champion because I am tired. <laughs> well, I think this is like probably one of the most successful weeks that Iron Women has had where we we got you to go across the world to get that special podcast for the Collins Cup preview show. You were able to fulfill your alternate duties there. You were able to like relay us all the information, help us figure out what the heck was going on in the Collins Cup and then icing on the cake, you just simply nailed your own race um, amidst that like chaos of the week, which goes to show our listeners that you can still have a Be Like Haley fabulous race um, on the heels of like chaos going into the, you know, like a lot of uncertainty, a lot of travel, I'm sure not ideal sleep conditions, you know, figuring things out and, you know, just being on your feet the day before, like I can, I would wager that was probably the most you've like really been on your feet the day before you were racing. Right. And, uh, you still, yeah, had like a super speedy race. I really enjoyed your finish line interview that you gave. I think people were calling you like the happiest person to cross the the finish line and you really were, but that just goes to show like it was, I, it was fun to get to see that, like be oozing out of you because it was such a, a great experience it looked like so um you know thank you for helping kind of give our iron women listeners too like a, a peek into that life more than ever in the last week my pleasure and i will say you know i i debated on you know do i go out and watch the collins cup because that is not the ideal thing to be doing uh the day before a race and not something i would normally do but i i think I was going into this. I kept things in perspective the whole time. Like when I first got the email saying that I was an alternate, you know, it's like, okay, is this possible? Is like the first thing. And then I'm like, okay, this is, this is not ideal prep. I talked about it last week. I, I, had, I was prepping to do Kona and then Kona was canceled. And so I, I'm really, really proud of myself for how I pivoted, how I problem solved. And I think during the whole thing, I tried to like keep things um, in perspective and be like, okay, do the really big things, right. You know, get your bike into transition, like, 
Um, make sure you're eating enough, make sure you're hydrating enough. And, and if I had been training eight months for this specific race for the challenge championship, I probably would have approached Saturday a little different, but for me as a fan of the sport, I, I wanted to go out there and watch the Collins cup and see it happen and be a little bit of a part of that because I felt like it was historic and I'm in so much admiration for the professional triathletes organization, the PTO and what they put on and how much work they put into that. And when I saw people like Belinda Granger and Dylan McNeese, um, who are, you know, retired pros and how much work they've put into this, um, I felt a lot more ownership of that event as a professional triathlete. And I think it, it gave me a lot more respect for the PTO and it's definitely, I'm really, I'm thankful that I went out and saw it and I knew that, yes, it's not ideal, but again, I made sure I carried water. I carried like you know, a hat, like coverings for the sun, making sure that I was taking care of myself. Like I sat down during the swim. I, um, you know, watched them go out on the bike, but then I went back to my, I went back, I got myself lunch. I chilled out my room a little bit. And then I, I really only went to like two different points on the run. You know, if I was just there spectating, I might've like run around a lot more, but I was like, okay, I need to really minimize time on feet. And then it was immediately afterwards, I met up with Grace Tech, who was also an alternate and we, she was spectating as well. We were in different spots, but, um, she had told me, she gave me a little Intel where in the VIP, she's like VIP area, the food is excellent. And so thank you to Grace, um, who she finished fourth in the race on, on, uh, on Sunday and had me running scared, but I got to spend some time with her. And, um, so I went up and to the VIP area, got an excellent meal from the pasta bar. I mean, it was like having chefs fix you pasta right in front of you. It was quite nice. Um, and you know, watched some of the men finish. Cause I, I definitely, you know, in, in a perfect world, I would have watched the men's races as well, but that was one of those things where I was like, I need to get off my feet. I need to chill out and get myself together. Um, the race on Sunday did start at 9 a.m., so it was a little bit later. And I did think, Alyssa, like, I'm like, oh, this race starts yeah, that's nice. four hours later than Ironman Coeur d'Alene. <laughs> so it was like a very reasonable European start time that I was not sad about, given jet lag, sleep, you know, all that kind of thing. But um, And the weather was, it was very mild. I mean, I think it was it was probably like 70 degrees Fahrenheit in Chamarin, so um, again, made that run a lot more, a lot more enjoyable than the hundred degrees Fahrenheit temps we had in Coeur d'Alene. Um, so uh, yeah. And given the, given the situation, so I wouldn't say everyone needs to be out there on their feet the day before the race. I don't think that's like the pro tip I would offer, but I would say do the big things, right. You know, make sure you're taking care of yourself with the big things, um, and embrace the experience. And I'm thankful for that. But that, that all being said, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm chatting, like I have just drank an espresso, but I haven't, but <laughs> I definitely am tired. And I know that this week I need to be ultra careful and give myself all the sleep, all the like recovery downtime that I possibly can, because, that two weeks of life took a lot out of me and the adrenaline's going to wear off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think the, um, chatting like you've had an espresso is also the same as just being super tired. So don't worry. We will, you know, we have a few more items left to chat about, but it, this won't be too long of a show here. Um, we do have some housekeeping items for our listeners. A couple in the last couple of weeks, we talked about the outspoken, um, summit, how it's coming back in November in a virtual format and the in-person option as well. And we also talked about the awards that are happening. So this is the big thing that's like really happening before September 30th. You guys have to get in your outspoken summit, women in triathlon, um, award nominations. 
for all of the categories. So go online, outspokensummit.com, send, start submitting those nominations and getting all the amazing women in your life uh, some like, you know, gratification for all the amazingness that they are. Yeah. Those athletes, race directors, uh, coaches, there's not like nine different categories. So definitely go in there and check, but they won't, they won't win unless you nominate them. So definitely outspokensummon.com, which, which does lead into our interview because we talked to Dr. Alicia Allen, who has helped with the Outspoken Summit and she offers a few details on the summit during our interview. So definitely stay tuned. We're, we're talking about many things other than that, uh, but, um, stay tuned for that. And Alyssa, have you been doing anything? I mean, I didn't even ask. Sorry. I've been like, I've literally have been focused on, on just one thing at a time. I will, can I give one shout out for fanny packs? Sure. I just want to say this was something that I definitely questioned the fashion sense behind the fanny pack or the waist belt or whatever it's like the ter- technical term is now belt bag. Um, but my friends had had convinced me that they are good. I think Gwen Jorgensen posted something about how they're great for travel. My friend Megan actually got me one for my birthday and I brought it to Shimmerin and it was the best thing ever, especially when you have to have like a passport, a vaccine record, um, a COVID test, like another like signed affidavit saying you've had a COVID test and your boarding pass all at the ready for several airport checks. Um, excellent, excellent piece of, of fashion. And I'm glad they're back in style or at least they're in my style forever now. Oh, I definitely am a fan of the fanny packs in like multiple ways. I have like a casual one that I I do, I use for travel or just like going out because I just don't like, I mean, I think they're better than purses in a lot of ways, but so I do have that. I have, I'm like a big fan. People wear hydration vests. I wear a lot of like the hydration belts, um, in various forms. I have a couple of those. And then Haley, this is like a great tie into what I have been doing because in, I went to a mountain bike camp this past weekend and they had a raffle and I won the hydration fanny pack, like from Hydro Flask. So my raffle from the mountain bike camp. Yeah. And it's super cool. It like has, you can carry five liters of liquid because mountain biking, my mountain bike, you can only fit like a 16 ounce bottle on the frame because of the way the suspension and the frame is like, that's all I can carry bottle wise. So I'm always using like my, one of my running waist belts or something or, um, or a hydration pack, but I just don't like having that much on my back, like that weight. And so all the like, you know, cool coaches at the mountain bike camp, I was eyeing up their like fashion tips for mountain biking. Cause that's like, obviously an important part of things as I get into a new sport and they all had these, these waist packs. So now I have my own, which I'm super psyched about. So totally agree. You guys, we are on the breaking front of fashion here at the iron women podcast. As you know, um, fanny packs are where it's at, where it's at. And Haley, so that is pretty much what I've been up to. Uh, mountain bike camp was a big thing I was looking forward to. It was super, super fun. Uh, it was put on through ladies all ride. You can check them out on, they have a really big Instagram. That's super, um, popular and they give a lot of mountain bike tips if you're into that on their Instagram, but they do various, they're based out of like Bend, Oregon area and they do various, they're actually head to Montana next, um, huh. for their next camp and they go, you know, a handful of places all over the U S they do various camps. And I signed up to, as a, my first opportunity for like traditional formal, you know, kind of showing me the ropes of what I've gotten myself into with the mountain bike. And it was really, really fun. I had a great time, uh, met a lot of really great women and we just had a blast for two days playing on bikes, learning a lot. I like 
almost tried a lot of things and chickened out a lot of times, but um, it was a good, it was like a really cool way for me to be a beginner at something like in, you know, I knew I was a beginner as a mountain bike, but it's a little different when you're out on your own. And then like to go to a camp with 75 women and you're like a beginner, right? So that was a really fun experience for me. And I was able to, I had a really great team of coaches and you know, of course, as a coach myself, I'm like observing a lot of their techniques that they're using. And that was really cool for me to be able to absorb how they communicate things to beginners and helped me like process that. And I will definitely take away some of the the ways that they just kind of brought people in as beginners, made everyone feel welcome, communicated the basics of a sport and all of that. And I spent like an hour or two today on YouTube looking up how I can build a bike park in my backyard. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Nice. So because I have a lot of work to do, Haley, as I said, I chickened out of a lot of things. And that's like, that was totally fine to me in the moment. But it's things that I hope like a year from now, I am not chickening out from. And so the only way to do that is to practice more. So we uh, I like have a list of like wood I need to buy and some shovels and like digging things. And I want to build a jump in the backyard (laughs) or a drop. No, I want to build a drop. I'm not going to jump for a while, but I want to build a, like a drop so I can practice that maybe like a little skinny, you know, ramp thing. So I can practice balancing on skinny things, which is scary to me. And then, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a fun pastime for me right now. This is cool. Well, I'm glad you are, you know, embracing the beginner mentality and enjoying the, uh, you know, cycle of improvement, because I do think that's, that is fun. And it's like, it can make, being a beginner. I mean, being a beginner is hard, but it's amazing how fast things happen until you become like a more experienced athlete and then you're helping beginners. So, um, now I want to like, hopefully sometime in the future, I'll come visit and go on your little backyard pump track. (laughs) I know. Right. Yeah. That Matt is like a little resistant. He's like, I'm not sure if that's in our lease. I'm like, we'll ask for permission late or ask for forgiveness, not permission. Yeah, you can. I mean, if it's just like ramps and stuff, I feel like that's easy. You could almost move it. Like there are features. I don't know. <laughs> if you exactly, need to, exactly, exactly. Yes, but Haley, we do have a really fun interview for everyone today. So let's let's tell everyone what that is. Yeah. So as I mentioned, Dr. Alicia Allen is one of our guests. She's joined by Dr. Lauren Dolan. And so both of these women are accomplished age group triathletes, and they're also type one diabetics. And so Alicia and Lauren kind of tell us about their diabetes diagnosis, diagnoses and how they manage racing and training, which is actually quite different between the two of them. They have very different like methods of, of doing this. And so it's really interesting. It's not type one diabetics, like my most categories of humans are not a monolith. And we get to hear about the nuanced uh, approaches that they take to their diabetes management, how they do major endurance events, uh, managing their blood sugar. And and so we also asked about um, what they think about continuous glucose monitors or CGMs, which you've probably seen pop up on the arms of pro triathletes and runners who athletes who do not have diabetes. So we ask Alicia and Lauren to kind of give their honest opinions about non diabetics using CGMs. Uh, I will say we recorded this interview earlier this summer. So we do mention some earlier summer races, including Alicia's finish at Ironman Coeur d'Alene. But I'm also happy to report that Lauren actually raced Ironman 70.3 Maine this past weekend. and She finished fourth in her age group. So congratulations to Lauren. And with that, we will have our full conversation with Dr. Alicia Allen and Dr. Lauren Dolan right after the break. 
Haley, it's summertime and racing and traveling is back. Hot temps, race recovery, and mountain adventures is the recipe of my summer, and I am always carrying Noon Instant in my water bottle, hydration pack, and post-race clothes bag. Alyssa, I'm with you, and I'm using Noon Instant as a way to keep reminding my taste buds that we have a little appointment on the Big Island in October that is sure to need all the replenishment of electrolytes, vitamins, and minerals that we can get. You can get your own Noon Instant, Noon Sport, or any of the Noon Hydration Podium Series products at NoonLife.com and use the code LiveFeisty for 30% off. That's NoonLife.com with code LiveFeisty, capital L and capital F. Haley, have you ever been jealous of the elite running or cycling groups who are able to get their blood work done super quickly and efficiently because they have a doctor on staff? Yes, I have been jealous. I have a great primary care physician, but I'll admit, sometimes I'm curious about certain blood markers in between my annual doctor visits. Me too, and that's why I'm excited Inside Tracker is here. Inside Tracker is on demand blood testing. You pick your plan online, schedule your blood draw appointment locally, and get your results within a few days. My favorite part, they don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips too. For a limited time, Inside Tracker is offering our listeners 25% off of their entire store. Just go to insidetracker.com slash ironwomen and get started. The Iron Women podcast is grateful to Zelio Skincare for their continued support of the podcast. I'm always excited when I start pulling out the Zelio sun barrier more and more because that's a sure sign races are around the corner. And I'm going to be happier than ever using my Zilio's Race Relief Cold Therapy Muscle Gel because it means I actually got to do an in-person race this year. You can get your own Zilio Sun Barrier Race Relief Shower Products and Chamois Cream for 15% off with the code IRONWOMEN at teamzilios.com. Welcome to the Iron Women Podcast. So we have two guests this week, and since we do have an audio-only format, we want to start by letting our audience hear your voices. So can you each tell us who you are and where you are? Let's start with Alicia. All right. Hi, I'm Alicia Allen. I have been doing triathlons, specifically Ironman distance, for 10-plus years. I currently live in North Carolina. Uh, I have a PhD in biomedical engineering and currently work in lung tissue engineering. And Lauren, where are you? Uh, I'm Lauren. Uh, I'm 30 years old. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate working on my PhD in information systems. And I am a bit of a COVID nomad at the moment. I don't really have a home. Um, I'm bouncing back and forth between Maryland and Connecticut. Wait, what's the reason for being a COVID nomad? Just because you can work remotely, you want to take advantage? Yeah, um, my PhD program went remote. Um, and actually, this is maybe a bit of a sad story, but I got divorced. I'm one of the COVID divorces. And so I decided to move not back home, but back up to the Northeast where I'm from. Um, and I've really, it's been a good experience for me overall because uh, although I've been from the Northeast, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to settle and make my home there. But this year with COVID and everything, I like discovered winter sports and I'm starting to embrace uh, being a Northeast person. So I think I'm Northeast to stay. I might have to pick your brain about that Northeast, like surviving the winter, winter sports you picked up and all of that. So we'll leave that for after we're not recording. But yeah, I, I think I have that coming up in my future soon. So I'll love to hear your tips. Sure, sure. 
And Alicia, I just saw you in person a few weeks ago at the awards ceremony at Ironman Coeur d'Alene, which you also raced. So it's been a few weeks since race day. Have you finally cooled off, rehydrated? Are you, how are you recovering? Good. I feel like I'm still catching up at work. We just put the last set of clean clothes away yesterday and unpacked the bike and everything. So I feel like I'm finally caught up back to where we need to be um, and focusing on the future. But yeah, it was a hot one. Yes. I think, uh, listen, I would agree. I survived though. <sighs> Survival was definitely key in that race. Um, and uh, Lauren, you mentioned kind of your winter sports uh resurgence, but I don't think you've raced a triathlon yet this year, even though you are a triathlete. So I'm curious, you, you mentioned a little bit about changing a lot during the pandemic, but has, how has training been for you? You know, my training was actually amazing um, because I had something unfortunate happen and something fortunate happen, which was um, I had planned to race Maryland last year and I transferred it into St. George, the full um, thinking that that might happen. And as you probably know, um, St. George didn't get canceled until the last minute. So I was training super, super hard all of summer 2020 and just having a blast. It was so great. Um, and I took up backpacking. And then in the winter, I did cross country skiing for the first time. Um, but and then this year, I have actually had done some races. I qualified for Boston this spring. And um, I also did some local races where I had some decent, decent races, podium. It was good. It was good. Good spring. Um, and then later this year, I have Maine 70.3, Ironman Maryland, and North Carolina 70.3. A full schedule ahead. I love it. So we want to jump right in here. And both of you are accomplished triathletes, but you're also type 1 diabetics. And I believe you have very different stories, both with how you were diagnosed and then how you found the sport. So can you, Alicia, start us off by telling us a little bit about your background with type one diabetes and your triathlon history? Um, so my, I start with triathlon cause I started that first in around when I was graduating from undergrad 2009. And so I was well into five or so years of triathlon before I was diagnosed. Um, let's see. So, and I think my diagnosis story is actually very atypical compared to other people. So I was in graduate school, didn't feel anything atypical. If I had any fatigue or anything, I thought it was because I was triathlon training, but at the time I was a TA. So I was on health insurance with the university and they sent out this, um, health screening opportunity. And I was sort of arrogant or overconfident. I was like, oh, I'm going to go get tested because my baseline numbers are awesome. <laughs> and so if I do get sick or something, they'll look normal, like super overconfident, <laughs> probably a little cocky. And um, it involved a fasting blood sugar test where you have to fast, not eat for at least eight or so hours before the test, which I did. So I scheduled it to be first thing in the morning. Uh, I was cranky because I do really rely on breakfast. It's the most important meal of the day to like get started and get my metabolism going. So I showed up, they took a finger prick and ran it through the little machine. And I went back to my chair to wait um, because they were cycling through several employees at the time. Immediately started eating the granola bar I'd brought with me. 
and um, they came back and said, oh, we need to retest you. Don't eat anything. I was like, I've already eaten this bar. <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay, that's fine. So they did a retest. Um, I'm curious as to what was going on. Um, and so they gave the results to a nurse practitioner to interpret. And she's like, well, your fasting blood sugar is high. And that wasn't something I was expecting. Um, so it looks like you have diabetes. And while this was out of left field, it wasn't totally out of this galaxy because my sister is a type one diabetic and uh, she's younger. She was diagnosed when she was in elementary school. So there was a link there. Um, and I, I understood what living with diabetes meant, what it was, um, but I was not aware that adults were diagnosed with type one diabetes and maybe knew one person at the time that was diagnosed as an adult. Um, so with the nurse practitioner who's interpreting my results, she, she sort of asked these questions, even thought it was potentially type two because I was an adult. But from there I had a follow-up. I didn't have to go on insulin immediately. I didn't have a crash and need to um, totally turn my life around and learn something new within a matter of hours or days. Um, I had time to transition. So they put me on a short acting insulin first and then I sorry, a long-acting insulin, something that works in the background before I started taking a short-acting insulin, which is something you take at meals when you're eating. Um, and while I did it, I just continued with triathlon, and I was very sensitive to insulin to begin with, so I didn't even think about taking it while racing. So I just continued, and it's, um, I guess, it's progressed. So I have started taking insulin while I race, but um, it's like I've maybe adapted the diabetes to my training and not the other way around. And Lauren, same question for you. I think your diagnosis and your start in the sport were both fairly recent, but you'll, you'll have to tell us that for sure. Well, not too, too recent, not as long as Alicia, but um, I was diagnosed at age 26, so four years ago now. And interestingly, I think had the exact opposite um, diagnosis story from Alicia. So, so I was very sick for over a month. And um, like Alicia, I was also in the university healthcare system, which is sort of interesting. Um, and I went to six different like doctors or nurse practitioners to try to figure out what was wrong with me. And they just kept telling me that I was a workaholic and that I needed to rest. And, and I was like, no, you don't understand. Like I'm nauseous. I can't even like walk down the block without getting winded. And then eventually I just went into the ER and the ER, they took my blood sugar and they figured it out within half an hour. Um, and I was there in intensive care for eight days. And because they caught my diagnosis so late, um, I had to go on a completely full insulin regimen um, right away. So probably my diabetes right now is like, quote unquote, worse, um, you know, than Alicia's is. The worst is, it's hard to say because diabetes is a pretty individualized um, disease. But yeah, but I had... I'm taking pretty much the same amount now that I was when I was diagnosed, which is rare. Um, and I also wanted to just add that 
there's a common misconception that type 1 is a childhood disease, and about half of all people who are diagnosed are diagnosed as, as adults. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind. We were both diagnosed older, but that's not as uncommon as you think. And I think that's also why mine was, di was diagnosed so late, because even in the medical profession, there's still some misconceptions about it being a childhood disease. Um, so anyway, so pivoting to triathlon, um, it's funny. It's not that I was a sedentary person before I was diagnosed. Um, I had done an Olympic and a sprint like a, a, the summer before um, my diagnosis, but I was just kind of like one of those generally active, laid back people. And then after my diagnosis, I was just like something snapped and I just really wanted something that was going to prove to myself and to my family and my friends that I was still a strong person. So I did my first half marathon, my first marathon, my first half Ironman and my first Ironman all within one year like after my diagnosis. And it was sort of supposed to be this bucket list thing, but I totally fell in love with the sport and the lifestyle. Um, it's, it's cool how you both have found the sport and then how you have uh, continued to do it. And I, because it does sound like life with, uh, with type one diabetes can be difficult enough in everyday general life, but you both race Ironman triathlon. So Lauren, can you, you uh, walk us through kind of a race day. I mean, an Ironman race day, which is very long and you're, you're eating a lot. You're doing three different sports, you're transitioning and like how you, you know, how type one diabetes and the challenges that come with that factor into your race day. Sure. Yeah. Um, so just for some little more background, um, so insulin is this hormone that we don't make as type one diabetics and insulin taking too much of it or taking it close to working out um, can cause you to have a low blood sugar. And most people ha who have been in the sport a while have experienced bonking. And one way you can bonk is by getting low blood sugar, that really like jittery feeling. Um, it feels pretty bad, but and it's, and it's much more worse slash life-threatening um, if you're a type 1 diabetic. So in both in training and in racing, the thing that's most dif different and difficult for type 1 diabetics is spacing insulin, which means spacing eating because you need to take insulin to eat, um, spacing that far away from the exercise activity. So when I'm looking at my training schedule and my race schedule, I'm trying to time my meal two hours or more away from when I'm working out and then potentially having like a snack or something before with a little bit of insulin, but trying to put that meal far away. So on race day, I'm trying to be up three to four hours before the start and having that big meal. And then one of the things that I've been honing in on with my coach is that at the beginning of the race, everyone, not just type 1 diabetics, gets a big surge of adrenaline, and that actually causes blood sugar to go up. And for type 1 diabetics, we don't have insulin in our system to counteract that. So there's this really scary balance you have to make at, this, at the race start where your blood sugar is shooting up and you have to take some insulin in order to counteract that so that you're not 
high, having a high blood sugar and compromising your performance. And it's scary because under normal circumstances, taking insulin is going to cause you to have a low blood sugar. And then on top of that, you're diving into the swim where you don't have any access to blood sugar testing, either via a continuous glucose monitor or by a finger stick. You can't really bring your meter into the water with you. So it's just been a lot of um, trial and error and um, trust of my coach to figure out how much insulin to take to counteract that adrenaline. And then as the race goes on, um, this is where having a coach has been who is so knowledgeable in this um, has been really helpful for me. Um, as the race goes on, your insulin sensitivity actually changes. So, and that's it for a, kind of an obvious reason. Um, as you deplete all of the glycogen in your muscles, um, your muscles start to want to take in all of the sugar, um, you know, from your from your blood. So you're becoming more and more um, sensitive to insulin and wanting to take the blood sugar basically out of your blood. Um, so you can become low as the time goes on. So my coach, he works on a plan that I program into my insulin pump that has the insulin taper off and get less, um, throughout the race. So it's really, it doesn't have to be that complicated. And I know that Alicia probably has a different way of managing it, but like in a very, if you're managing it very intensely and scientifically, um, those are sort of all the things that I'm taking into account to try to base, have as normal blood sugars as possible to be as close to a normal person racing as I possibly can be. Right. And Alicia, it sounds like your experience might be slightly different. So I'd like to hear about that too. I'm laughing because I th earlier Lauren said she's quote unquote the worst diabetic, but seeing how disciplined she is and hearing like when she times her meals, I might be the worst diabetic. Um, so I'll follow her format and give a little bit more background. So I don't have a pump. I, um, do multiple daily injections. So the acronym in the community would be MDI. Uh, but I also have a continuous glucose monitor that I wear. And, um, so Lauren gets her readings on her pump. I get mine now on my phone. It, before they, um, were Bluetooth compatible, I used to have a little receiver it, it would be on that I could carry with me. And I wasn't as worried as that getting water damaged as I was my phone. <laughs> so um, for me, getting readings while I exercise and race is uh, trickier. Um, and I have two insulins. I have that longer acting basal insulin that's always there in the background. Um, and then I have the shorter acting, which is usually for meals, whereas Lauren's just on one insulin from the pump. So for race day, um, I've found like the shorter the race, it's, it can be harder to manage like, if you want to keep it in a particular range, if you want to have very tight control. So er, on my early days, I would sort of just have my basal insulin on board and just do the race and I'd be high, I'd finish the race, I'd take my insulin and then... Um, get back into a normal range and but recently it's i've realized that's affecting my performance like i'm getting particularly in 70.3s um into a spot where 
it's so high, particularly because that glycogen dump that happens at the beginning of the race from the adrenaline, um, it's getting so high that I also can't eat to replenish for later. And so I've started taking insulin and checking my blood sugar in T1. Um, and sometimes on T2, depending on where it's at. So I will get up early. I have a two hour window that that insulin, the short acting is on board, similar to what Lauren said. So I'll eat my breakfast. Um, generally we'll try to sip on things as needed while I'm setting up my transition area. And then I leave my, I have my phone with me in transition, but I leave that transition. And so I have no readings before the swim. And that's been hard. For example, at Haines City in Florida, 70.3, that was a long time. And I was actually sort of high. I learned later during that time when I ideally would have given myself insulin um, before the swim. So even though it was a 30 minute swim, I came into transition, my blood sugar was too high for starting the bike. Um, and also like Lauren says, as you deplete glycogen throughout the waste, the more readily your body will take up food. So, and I followed the advice earlier on like, it's a buffet on the bike and that's just wrong for me or maybe diabetics in general, because you need to, with diabetes, it's not, for me, I don't find it's about what I eat, it's more about the timing. So I found out for the bike, I need to like space out what I'm eating to be as steady as possible. Um, and then sometimes it'll get to the point that you're so delighted with leading on the run, you're trying to just get in as much as you can. But it's what you eat and what time you eat is very specific to your plan for race day. So I'm thinking about all this and I'm like so overwhelmed for you both now. I'm going to be like, oh my gosh, what's your race schedule? How can I like help you keep track of all this because like thinking at a high level, I mean, it must be, I'm sure it gets a little bit more, you know, easy to kind of handle all of these variables as you practice, but it does, it sounds like a lot. And so, especially thinking about having just race court lane and I'm like, it was a lot for me and I don't have to think about any of these things. Right. So I'm curious from like a race perspective, is there, do you guys feel like Ironman makes the race itself accessible for athletes with type one diabetes? Are there things the race can do better? Like Alicia, you were saying, you know, you leave your phone in, in transition and I'm assuming that's probably because when you get to the swim, like, what are you going to do? Just like leave it on the sand and hope you like exit at the same place and pick it up. Right. But like, I mean, I think they have like a table for like people with eyeglasses. Like, can we use that? Or like, you know, I mean, I guess I'm sure you've already like thought of some of these things, but like, you know, are there accessibility issues and like can improvements be made and things like that, I guess. Um, so Alicia, I'll, I'll throw it at you first. Okay. This is where my imagination sort of lack is lacking. Cause I don't always know what would be implementable. Um, so for um, both Lauren and I using the Dexcom, it picks up a reading every five minutes. So for a short transition, I, even if I could get my phone at that um, table, I guess I would at least have the readings before the swim, but I, it might not pick up the reading while I'm running through transition. Um, and particularly for Coeur d'Alene, because my cool plan was to, as I know Haley said earlier, was to dump everything on my head. <laughs> I didn't, wanted to be careful with any device I had with me. Um, and I actually did see another diabetic athlete on the course and saw him with his pump. And I tried out a pump earlier. So my solution separate from what 
any triathlon would do is maybe I could use that pump as a receiver <laughs> and make it think it has insulin in it so it doesn't get too unhappy. Um, the other thing I usually do because I don't have my phone immediately with me or a, a receiver to read my um, blood sugar right when I finish is I typically go to the med tent and just ask, can I check my blood sugar? And usually they're very receptive, like, sure, especially if they're not busy. And I've only been turned away once. And that, that was sort of surprising. I don't know if they were short staffed or what, but they immediately said, no, I was like, well, I'm diabetic. Like, here's my monitor. And they're like, no, I was like, okay. And usually that's so I can see where I'm at, like make a decision. Do I need to make a push to go to transition and get my insulin or find my money in your clothes bag with my insulin in it so that I can start refueling? And Lauren, do you have other things to add on, on this topic for us? Please tell us you haven't been turned away from a med tent. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I so like, I have I'm some. Like shocked. Yeah. I didn't mean to just skim over that, well, but I'm like, I think my brain will like comprehend that fully in a minute or two. So like maybe, yeah, I have nothing, nothing positive to say about that for you. I can't spin uh, that anyway. Like, <laughs> to be fair to them, like I was walking around, I wasn't in an acute case, but yeah, I was sort of surprised. I'm curious what Lauren has to say. Yeah. So I have a few things um, just to uh, kind of on this line of reasoning. I think there's a misconception um, that if a, a diabetic needs some kind of medical assistance, that that means that they shouldn't be racing anymore, which is completely false because a high blood sugar is very easily fixed during the race. And then another common thing that happens, unfortunately, is, you know, we are totally reliant on adhesives to keep on our medical devices, the, either the CGM or the insulin pump. There's like basically a little Band-Aid that's keeping these things on. And I can't even tell you how many of my friends have lost their devices, like have them fall out during a race because you're swimming and you're very sweaty. So I, again, I realized that there are limits to what would be fair and what would be implementable. But I really believe that if Ironman wanted to make the race more accessible, that they would allow us to leave a little kit with extras of our, our, um, our pump sites and our CGM sensors with a medical person. And then we could just walk over to medical and like put on another one. Um, again, you know, I know that there's no outside assistance, but I think that's what would be really fair because otherwise, you know, a lot of us do have like on the bike, we'll bring an extra set with us. Um, but like the CGM, it's not possible to put another one of those like on the bike because the app applicator is really large. And then I also just wanted to say about the eyeglasses table. So for people who have insulin pumps, um, there have been a lot of really sad stories of the insulin pump not being at the eyeglasses table. So usually what happens is you get a, you get a bag, you write your num race number on it, and then as you're getting into the water, you put your insulin pump in the bag and you hand it over to the eyeglasses table people. And it's especially complicated if you're in a race with a different T1 
um, or a different, yeah, a different T1 because you're coming out in a different place. So your stuff has to make it there. But I've also had friends um, just their in, insulin pump like did not appear for 30 minutes after getting out of the water. And just, it's just very scary and frustrating because, you know, these devices are medically necessary. I mean, you can go back on injections, but if that's not how you take care of yourself, that's not fun. Um, and they're also very expensive to replace. They're over $10,000. So I would just say that there should be more counseling of the people who are volunteering at the eyeglasses table about what this means um, to be handed an insulin pump. And I'll just tell you from my personal experience, this is going to sound kind of dramatic, but when I get to that eyeglasses table, I look the volunteer in the eye and I tell them, if you lose this, I could die, which <laughs> is not yeah. like a hundred percent, um, you know, accurate because I wouldn't die right away. But, uh, <laughs> I just want them to know that this is very important. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's a real issue. The eyeglasses table, I think is the number one sort of problem, um, that could be fixed by our Iron Man. Yeah. That expand on Lauren's point. Like if we don't have insulin, we're basically starving. It, um, even in Coeur d'Alene where I just was, I, um, we were trying to use our meal voucher and I just did not restock my purse with needles and we went out to dinner. I'm like, I'm just, like crap. Cause we were both really hungry. I was like, crap, I can't eat dinner until we like get my supplies. And Cause I'm not like at that point, I didn't want to just push my insulin high, it's not going to go into my muscles or where I need it. And like Lauren said, being having low blood sugar is an acute problem. Being high, it's not, um, it's not as dangerous, but it certainly doesn't feel good. It's sort of like sludgy blood. And um, when you're trying to perform, like you just get this mental fog. And I think some people have described that when they get uh, maybe too much sodium, like you sort of can't focus as much. And that's the key problem I deal with in races. But yeah, Lauren, I don't think that's over dramatic. <laughs> it's like the best way to emphasize how critical it is to you. I agree. I don't think it was over dramatic at all. That's, I feel like maybe the eyeglasses table should also be like renamed to the medical devices table or something like something that emphasizes the gravity of, of what is at that table. Like, I just, I mean, there, like you say, education is probably a great place to start, but I'm glad you bring these up. Cause I've never, I mean, I think about different transitions as this is kind of annoying, but sometimes it allows you to swim a route that you wouldn't normally swim or do something you wouldn't normally do. And I'm like, no, those are actually like barriers to accessibility. So I'm, I'm really thankful for your perspective, both of you, Lauren, you've mentioned your coach several times, and I believe he's also a type one diabetic. And that's why he, he knows so much and you're able to come up with these plans together. So is that true? And was that important to you when you chose to work with him or did that just happen by coincidence? Yeah, that was not a coincidence. So after I had my year long tear where I, you know, did all of the long distance endurance things, I decided that I wanted to get more serious in the sport. And I'll talk about this a little bit more later, but there's a very large community of type one diabetics in especially long distance endurance sports. 
Um, so I went on to one of my Facebook groups and I just said, oh, hey, you know, who are you all working with as a coach? And right away, like 10 people said, Cliff Sherb, he's the best. Um, and he is. Uh, he actually won Ironman Arizona back in the day. He is a type 1 diabetic himself. And I just think, you know, to have gone that far in the sport as a type 1 is really, really impressive. And then he also, we, we have a nickname for him amongst myself and a couple of my friends. We call him Cliff Bot because he is like a robot. He loves numbers, <laughs> um, which is great for a diabetic because you're doing all of these calculations and trying to come up with um, your dosing strategies. And he had what he called like his lab where he would have diabetics like run on the treadmill and like see how much insulin they needed and like try to hone in all of these things um, for his clients. So he, it, not everyone with diabetes takes like this very like scientific approach, just like how not all triathletes like to track their numbers. Um, but for me as a numbers person, you know, getting my PhD in information systems, I really loved his approach and have enjoyed working with him. And Alicia, I don't even know if you have a coach, but do you have a coach and or do you, or you're with your coach or on your own structure, your training with a lot of the data to best accommodate the challenges of managing your blood sugar? Uh, very opposite from Lauren again. Uh, I do have a coach, but no, they don't have diabetic um, athlete experience. I did when I was first diagnosed, do the research and Cliff Sherb's name came up. So I knew of him. Um, but at the time I was in grad school and I couldn't afford um, coaching. So I initially had to do it myself approach and that worked because of how I transitioned. I like, I had the opportunity to transition into diabetes that a lot of people don't have. So I didn't feel at the time I needed a, um, a deep dive into it. So, um, it's mostly been me I've had two coaches thus far sort of informing them of what um, the challenges are and what I'm working with, but I've taken ownership of the diabetes piece. And maybe because I deal with numbers at work and I like, and all the scientific variability there is I don't take it on um, as much as Lauren does. Um, like I just get overwhelmed with, well, I did this intensity this day and now it's a run versus a bike versus a swim and how each of those activities can be glycogen depleting on their own versus how long you're doing them versus the time you are in your menstrual cycle and how that affects insulin sensitivity. I, I sort of just rely on my gut clock or gut, sorry, gut calculator to like this is about what I think I'm doing and this is what I'm looking to eat. So it's going to be about this much. And then by using my continuous glucose monitor, I was like, Oh, I'm going down. Maybe I need to eat a little bit more. So a very opposite approach of Lauren and the, our coaching, um, pairs. And we do have a question for you in a little bit. We're not quite there yet about your comment about how insulin affects your menstrual cycle. I think that's going to be like a, an interesting topic to kind of talk about. But first, um, we've mentioned the continuous glucose monitors or CGMs a few times now, and they're also making a lot of news in the athletic world these days. But before we talk about them in the athletic sense, just a little bit more about kind of maybe how they work. And, um, we know Alicia uses one like Lauren, if you're using it also or not at all, um, 
maybe like why, you know, any, any other thoughts you have on that, but I guess I'll maybe tell you like my very uninformed, you know, just based on this. And then you can kind of build on that to help maybe explain is like, so I'm picturing something that gets stuck to you <laughs> with a big applicator. Lauren said that, right? So some kind of large applicator sticks something to you. And I'm imagining it's like a, I have no idea how it would be continuously able to like prick you, but something would be able to somehow then get through your skin into your body, into your blood. Right. And like, I mean, this is like sounding even more like made up as I'm saying it, but I think this is a real thing. Right. So then it's transmitting somehow checking the blood sugar that it manages to prick you with <laughs> and then sends that now via Bluetooth to like an app on your phone, right. That you get instantly. So, or every five minutes, not instant. Well, like every five minutes. Right. So Alicia, you said that part. So this is now like, I'm picturing this little like robot apparatus, like on your arm, um, doing that work. So now maybe enlighten me and our listeners about what exactly they are. And Alicia, you can, you can take this one first. Okay. Uh, I first want to ask Lauren where she wears her sensor. Sorry. On your stomach. So mine's on my, um, she's muted. So Lauren's wearing it where it's recommended. I wear it on the, like the upper glute slash fat pad back there. So you're supposed to wear it sort of in like a, a little bit of a fatty area. Um, when I was diagnosed, I did, um, I was like 10 pounds underweight. So I was, I think Alyssa, this is what you're getting to. There's a little wire that sits right under your skin. And so I sort of just had the heebie-jeebies of putting it on my stomach and I didn't want to deal with waistbands. So there's three parts. There's the um, sensor. So that's what the applicator's on and it injects a little wire that sits under your skin. There's the receiver that picks up the signal sorry, the transmitter that picks up the signal that sends it via Bluetooth to a receiver. In my case, that's my phone. Uh, Lauren's case, it's her pump. Um, and then it outputs a blood sugar. It is actually, and I'm probably going to get into the scientific weeds, it's actually your lymphatic um, fluid. And I think they have an algorithm to, to uh, predict blood sugar from that. And... I forgot where I was going with this. Um, the uh, So how it works is there's a um, an enzyme that it uses to create a chemical signal to measure the amount of sugar in your, in your blood. Um, so a finger prick is much more accurate, but the technology has gotten really good that when um, we check via fingerprint, it usually matches or maybe it's within 10 to 20 units. So answer your questions, Alicia. Yeah. And how does it like, does it stay on you for like every month? Do you have to change it? Like, you know, it sounds like they can fall off if you're swimming, especially maybe as a triathlete, like how often, you know, I mean, I'm sure they're also with insurance. It probably helps, but probably not super accessible to get like easily. So, you know, maybe a little bit about that. Uh, every 10 days, it used to be every seven. Oh. And I would mess with it and try to get two weeks out of a sensor um, in the past, just to sort of cut down on medical costs. Um, but now it's every 10 days and I, I don't try to extend it now. And 
the adhesive has gotten better, in my opinion. Um, uh, they do have free sort of adhesive covers that they'll send to, but I've also used the Kinesio tape to just like patch it on so it doesn't come off at very critical moments. Yeah, unfortunately, I've been at the lifeguard stand more times than I care to admit um, that with my the sensor starting to fall off and just saying, what waterproof tape do you have? I just want to tape this on so that it doesn't fall off. And I guess we can move into the slightly more controversial part of this question because uh, we've seen several athletes, you know, pro athletes, Gwen Jorgensen, Lucy Charles Barkley come to mind, uh, wearing CGMs. These are athletes who are not type one diabetics and super sapiens, which is an app that's designed to pair with an Abbott developed CGM. Uh, I think was just announced as the title sponsor for the world championships in Hawaii. So what do you think about CGM use for athletes without type one diabetes. Uh, Lauren, I know you've blogged about this topic, so let's start with you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I wrote that blog post, Super Sapiens wasn't out yet. So what we what I was observing was that there were a few athletes who were having the CGM prescribed for them from a regular doctor. Um, in order to do this biohacking. And at the time, like, I mean, my, my general opinion is that the more widely used this technology is, the, it's likely that it will be better for type 1 diabetics because there will be more people using it and more incentive um, to innovate. So that's overall positive. But where it's a negative is that there is still um, a lot of difficulties accessing CGMs um, depending on your insurance um, and over and in countries around the world that have, you know, uh, socialized medicine in a lot of places, it's not available um, on the prescription plan, like from the government. Um, so where there's a place where, you know, access for normal people and for athletes could potentially, you know, um, butt heads with access for type one diabetics that I see as being very problematic. Um, but just keep in mind, you know, pe normal people do have glycemic variability, but it's nothing like what type one di diabetics experience. Like you're considered to be doing very well um, if your blood sugar is within the range of 70 to 180, set only 70% of the time. And most normal people are not experiencing, like they're getting close to 100% in that range and they're not seeing any highs like close to 180 or lows down below 70. And I'm not saying that it's not useful because we know it's useful because UCI banned it. Um, <laughs> But, you know, just for us, this is really, you know, a, it's a life-saving device also at night, um, you know, when we can't be monitoring our blood sugar and getting an alarm to tell us, you know, that you're low, like that could really save someone's life. So again, just keep in mind, like the different purposes of it. And, you know, we'll have to just see how it improves the technology and, 
cha changes you for either for the better or for the worse access um, for diabetics. Alicia, do you have any thoughts on CGM use by, by non-diabetics? Yes. And I'm also curious just I mean, maybe you don't, maybe you know, maybe you don't know, but, um, the cost, I don't, I didn't look up the cost of one of these. If you just bought it, can you buy it without a prescription? Just can, I'm assuming that maybe, I know that when you go to the super sapiens website, you cannot buy it in the United States right now. Um, I've been very fortunate to be on health insurance that covers it. So I don't really know the cost. Um, and I'm even fortunate in the sense that I have health insurance that has a max deductible. So even when I decided to try the pump, that was really expensive. But once I got to the deductible, it was okay. So I, I really don't know how much how expensive it is. And sort of to Lauren's point, it's sad when you can have these athletes that don't have a medical reason to get it, whereas there's people who really need it for a strong medical reason who can't. Um, I think in some ways I might be more cynical than Lauren because, um, like being a diabetic and learning how the, how healthcare insurance and the insurance works, it's in a little inelastic market. Like, so I'm, I'm not, I know people are optimistic that it will drive costs down, but with the way the health insurance works in the U S I don't know if that's possible just because of the way the system works. If something's, um, in high demand, that doesn't mean the price goes down. Um, we've seen some cases where the price actually goes up. Um, the thing about Lauren saying the UCI Bandit, that meant that, that there's a team, Team Nova Nordisk, which is a team of diabetic athletes. They have a male cycling team. So when UCI Bandit, they had to file an application so that they could have their continuous glucose monitors. Um, for most triathletes, I think having a continuous glucose monitor is just a very fancy and expensive way to learn about nutrition. Um, foods have a glycemic index, which is basically a measure of how quickly um, the sugars and carbs are dumped into your blood. For example, quinoa has a very low glycemic index. Uh, whereas white rice or white processed bread has a very has a higher glycemic index, and we can, as diabetics and we have our continuous glucose monitors, we can see that in real time. So if someone has the means and they're curious and they want to see how that works and they want the customized feedback, I guess sure, why not? But I don't want there to be athletes out there to think that. Athlete, uh, other athletes who are getting these continuous glucose monitors are getting the special edge. I don't think that's the case. Um, I'm sort of curious now. Is like, well, is there an ideal rate that a sugar can be delivered into the bloodstream? Like, if it, if you could make a like a continuous sugar stream into your bloodstream, is there an ideal rate for that? Um, but there's limitations to what we can practically do nutrition-wise throughout like a full-distance triathlon. So. My guess is like you, Alyssa and Haley, I just, I just don't think you would be making radical changes to your nutrition plan if you had con continuous glucose monitor data. Um, I think for most people spending that time and energy, they could just, if they just spent that time on their nutrition and being deliberate with it, and that's something I've had to do um, by necessity, 
And sometimes I've been resistant to doing it, but it shows when I put that time and energy in, I get uh, a performance output. Um, so yeah, just learning what foods go into your system, what your body responds to, it, it sort of comes back to that theme of knowing what your body is experiencing without the external input, in my opinion. Yeah, I'll just add on to that. Um, you know, in terms of like the nutrition quality, I did see um, a professional triathlete who will go unnamed, who posted about pineapple pizza and like viewing that, um, the impact of that via the super sapiens sensor. And what's kind of funny is as a, as a diabetic um, and viewing the CGM, like, let me tell you, pizza is one of the worst foods that you can have. And then because that fat is causing the carbohydrate to absorb over a long period of time and also decreasing your insulin sensitivity. And then you add on top of that, the super high glycemic index pineapple, like spiking you up. And yeah, like that's not the best nutrition choice. And you didn't really need a sensor to show you that. Um, on the other end though, where I do think there could be some performance benefits is if um, you are prone to more low blood sugar type bonking, which does happen for normal people. Um, my understanding is that there's kind of two ways you can bonk. One is by having a low blood sugar and the other is by having low sodium or like electrolyte imbalance. So if you're prone to the low blood sugar kind of bonking and you can see that in real time during a race and basically remind you to take your nutrition, um, you know, that could be very beneficial. And that's more of my sense of the reason why they banned it. Um, but I can't really say that for sure. I have a feeling Super Sapiens knew the, or is that how, yeah, Super Sapiens knew the, the type of human being that is an Ironman triathlete when they were uh, scouting for marketing opportunities because the triathletes tend to love the uh, shortcuts. So um, it does sound like, you know, interesting data can come from it, but um, I'm, I'm, it was great to hear both of your perspectives on that. So um, it was something I hadn't really let myself think too much about yet. So uh, yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I don't think here on the Iron Women podcast today is the first time that your paths have crossed. Um, I think that you met Ironman Mount Tremblant in 2019, where Alicia maybe set the fastest Ironman time by a woman with type 1 diabetes with an 11.04. And I think, Lauren, you were second fastest in 11.38. So, you know, you also have mentioned kind of a community of endurance athletes with type 1. So can you tell us more about that? Is there like friendly competition going on, uh, you know, within Facebook groups or where do you, where do you find each other? Um, Alicia, we'll start with, with you. Um, so because I knew Cliff, Lauren's coach, and knew the TriStar Club, I saw her on the course. And I don't know if you remember me saying anything to you on the course, um, but I figured she was diabetic um, or there was a chance. So um, when I saw her later in the tent, I was like, oh, are you diabetic? And she's like, yeah. And there was a moment of confusion that I sort of registered, but didn't understand until later. Um, it was a good conversation. And uh, I, because I didn't grow up uh, diabetic, there are um, youth camps for children with diabetes. So some people have a big community, whereas Lauren 
I think it was the first triathlete I met in person with diabetes. Um, everything else had been people on Facebook in a group or someone that I had reached out to. Um, so she, she was sort of like the first one and I was excited to meet her. Um, I have had a couple of years where I've been trying to figure out that diabetes piece and some other things. So I, I did, a, um, Ironman Cosmet was actually my fastest time uh, around almost 10 hours, but it, it's also because uh, Lauren's like really dug in and she blogs about this and she gives, puts out all this information about the technology. So she's very outwardly diabetic, whereas um, I'm open about it, but I sometimes actively try not to make it a primary identity. Like I, I'm not going to go over the corner and inject my insulin, but um, I I don't blog about it, and um, and you'll come on the podcast me. about it with us, though. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, so yeah, we met in the tent at Mount Tremblant, um, and we've when I tried the pump, I contacted Lauren for uh, advice and like how to integrate it into training because I just had so many questions because it is so different. Lauren, do you have any other thoughts about the type one triathlete and endurance sport community? Oh yeah, so many thoughts. So I just wanted to uh, provide just a little bit more background because I'm not sure Alicia even knows this story. Um, so, so my coach, as I mentioned, he was one of the fastest um, diabetic triathletes. And one day I just said to him, I was like, Cliff, like, who are the fast women and why aren't they talking? Like, where, where are we? And like, how can I meet them? And I even had this vision. I was like, Cliff, I'm going to find for you, you know, at least five really strong type one diabetic Ironman athletes who are female. And we're going to be, I have like ideas in my head, what we're going to call it ourselves, like project Phoenix. Um, we're going to, you know, and like try to set out and chase some really fast Ironman times. And the reason I thought that this was going to be a feasible project um, is that so there's a really strong diabetic um, endurance community, and there's a guy, his name's Don Muchow, and he just ran across the United States from um, Disneyland to Disney World, by the way. He's like a very impressive um, long-distance runner. And he keeps a record of all of the diabetics who he knows who have completed Ironmans. And so he has, he has told me that over 300 diabetics have, or type one specifically, have completed an Ironman race. Um, and normal type one diabetics, by the way, they exercise less than the average healthy person just because of fears of going low and having low blood sugars. But I think because endurance sports poses this great challenge, like there are so many of us who have on the other side of the spectrum have decided to take it on. So in the absence of being able to find other women who were out there like chasing fast times, I told Cliff, I said, let's do a little media campaign where I'm going to say that I'm trying to become the fastest woman with type one diabetes. And it was really disappointing because we still couldn't find these other women who might have joined up with me to like become a training group. 
Um, and then I was so shocked when I got in at Ironman Montremblant and I thought like, maybe I was the fastest woman, but like, that wasn't the reason why I was trying to be the fastest woman with type one diabetes. It was to find these other women. And then Alicia comes over and she's like, Hey, <laughs> I see you have a pump. And I was like, wow. Okay. I found her. I found another fast woman with type one diabetes, but it wasn't at all in the way that I sort of thought that it would play out. Um, so if you're a diabetic woman listening, listening to this podcast and you're into chasing fast Ironman times at the half and full distance, hit me up because maybe there will be time for this project one day. And I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I am so supportive of anyone, but especially people with chronic illnesses, just trying to get Ironman for fun or for their bucket list. But I think there's this place where there's room for people who want to compete at a high level and show, you know, what we really can do and what we're capable of um, and try to make the race more accessible for everyone else and feel more doable for everyone else. Um, and I think it's sad that there are so many men who with type one diabetes who are competing at a high level, both at Ironman, as well as, you know, on, on the cycling side with Team Novo, Novo Nordisk but the women don't have um, as many role models in the space. So I'm hoping that that's something that's going to change, you know, within my lifetime. Right. And so what can we be doing as podcasters, as podcast listeners, as athletes, as teammates, as competitors to lower these barriers? How do we support team Phoenix? Like how do we make this happen and just get more, especially women into the sport? <laughs> Lauren, we'll start with you. I think, yeah. Yeah. So kind of two things come to mind. Um, you know, if you know someone who has type one diabetes and who's at all interested, I think just trying to be supportive and talk about some of these examples of people who have done it, um, maybe, you know, put the, put this podcast toward them, you know, tell them that there are Facebook groups that where people spe specialize in this kind of stuff and where they can have a lot of support. Um, I think that there's definitely a role for non-diabetic people to lead diabetics into the spaces because not everybody is like, I mean, I don't want to make it too much of an analogy to coming out because it's very different, but as sort of Alicia alluded to, not everyone is out with their um, diabetes diagnosis. So they may not know that there are so many resources and sources of support um, that are available. And then the other thing I would say, you know, especially on the cycling side, if you notice someone in your group who has type 1 diabetes, if you see their pump, you know, be respectful, but see if you can ask them about it because oftentimes, you know, it's, it is a little bit scary going, especially out on group rides and doing group exercise and, you know, if you do have a low blood sugar, it's good if other people know that that's what's going on. Um, you know, not just for safety, but just sort of for, for comfort and um, just so that you feel understood. Because there's sometimes there's this feeling like you don't have a place in the sport um, because people don't understand your experience very well. So I think being curious, as long as you're respectful, um, is a good thing. And, you know, you might meet someone who says, I don't really want to talk about my diabetes. But more often than not, I think that won't be the case. I think a lot of people, even if they're not 
out as so to speak um still are open to talking and become more confident and comfortable um, the more others take interest alicia anything to add okay <laughs> yeah i i've met people who like upon learning i'm diabetic who's like sort of the the phrase like oh but you don't look diabetic or you know that initial register surprise that being diabetic can be co um, compatible with a strong athletic performance. And that's what Lauren's getting to. It, they, they can totally be compatible. There's a lot of athletes that have chronic conditions. So my piece of advice is like, don't count people out, um, especially performance-wise, don't stereotype on that. Um, because that, yeah, that's just frustrating for us. I mean, if you think about being women and in the endurance space, like having that feeling that, someone's going to think your performance that day is due to you being a woman, not because you had a mechanical, you're having an off day, you're just flat. Like, yeah, just don't count people out. Um, I like talking about it. I welcome questions. Some people don't. Um, but I, it just, what, what Lauren said, I, I think is enough just as support. Be a friend, you know, and yeah, I think that it can, it can be summed up with that too, I think, um, if that's, yeah. But uh, I wanted to go back to Alicia, like you had mentioned that you take into account your, where you are with your menstrual cycle in the, as you're looking at insulin and Lauren, you recently posted on Instagram about participating in a study to look at the effects of the menstrual cycle on type one diabetes. So we realize it's still early in the study, but can you tell us anything about the experience so far and kind of any insights or anything that, that you both might have? Definitely. Um, so as a type one diabetic, be, especially someone who's on an insulin pump, you can actually see day by day how much insulin you're taking. And for most women, the amount of insulin that they're taking goes up during the luteal phase, which is that PMS period, you know, before um, the, the menstrual cycle begins. So the study that I'm in is attempting to quantify how much insulin sensitivity changes um, during that phase, specifically so that it can be incorporated into algorithms in the pumps. So the idea is that there might, it's going to try to give you more insulin um, when you're in that per um, period of time in your cycle. And it has been very interesting for me to participate in this. Um, the more, I shouldn't say unpleasant, uh, more labor intensive part of being in the study is that I've had to take ovulation tests because um, <laughs> they're trying to, you know, get, get at what, at what point you're ovulating so that they can test um, and basically look for that luteal phase. Um, so there's been a lot of peeing on sticks and having to explain to people that they're not, I'm not taking pregnancy tests. <laughs> but yeah, I can definitely see, um, you know, that my insulin sensitivity decreases. And for normal people, I know you've had um, Stacey Sims on your show. And just for some more background, um, she writes about in her book how in the luteal phase, your carbohydrate utilization decreases. So you're not able to access that energy as much, which from on a type one diabetic woman's side means that you usually need more insulin per unit 
per gram of carbohydrate that you're eating. So you'll need to take more with meals. And then there's also um, a rise in cortisol, like stress hormone during that time. So your background insulin that you need also increases. What Lauren just described makes me nervous. And maybe that's why I'm not on a pump because I wouldn't trust the technology that much to predict my menstrual cycle. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, maybe three to four days before my period comes, my blood sugar just sits higher and I have to take more insulin. And similar to what Lauren described earlier around the race and adrenaline is it's scary to take more insulin than you usually need because your gut is telling you, your experience is telling you you're going to go low. So I usually have a day where I'm sitting higher with insulin, or sorry, my blood sugar is sitting higher. And then I'm also looking at my calendar and be like, okay, that's what's happening. And then I adjust and just start injecting more insulin per um, unit carbohydrate I'm eating. And actually, Coeur d'Alene was like three days before my period. So that was just another variable <laughs> to factor in. Um, but because of like for women and getting into the sport, so not only for triathlon, you have the variability of the three sports, and then you have um, the variability of intensity of each workout. And then you're going to add on top like that your insulin sensitivity changes throughout the month. That's a lot of variables and that can be scary to manage um, for a woman getting into the sport. Um, so yeah, my approach has been to not calculate and I sort of just throw it, <laughs> like see what my blood sugar is doing and try to do notice patterns and trends I can use. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm interested to see how the study turns out. Well, it can be scary, but I think you two both show it can be done and you are role models for, for women who, with type one diabetes who want to get in triathlon and also those without so, because I think it's, you know, incredible. And thank you so much for sharing so much. One last question. I know we've kept you a long time, but while we have you here, Alicia, you have worked for the outspoken women in triathlon summit since its inception in 2018. And we did tell our listeners about the recent announcement. The summit will be back, hopefully in a hybrid model this fall. So while we have you here, can you share any details on what to expect and where we can go to sign up? Sign up is easy. We've made it as easy as possible. Go to outspokensummit.com. Right now, virtual tickets are on sale for $129 at the early bird price. Uh, the virtual summit will be on Hopin. We're building off the Live Feisty experience and virtual can be fun. We're taking issues on that are diversity, equity, and inclusion issues, but really it's how can women of all body types with diabetes, um, all different types of experience, how can all women thrive in triathlon? Because we all get to that Ironman start line and you start counting the pink caps and there's definitely not as many pink caps as green caps. Why is that? It's for simple reasons, sort of like what Lauren mentioned. The volunteers don't know what to do with medical devices. So just think about that, like what can be done differently for women in sport and what can you do when you join other outspoken women? What can you do for triathlon? It's uh, November 12th to 14th and we'll release details soon about the in-person event. Um, and if you do buy a virtual ticket now, you can upgrade that to an in-person ticket later once we launch that event. 
Great. Well, thank you so much for all of the details. And Lauren and Alicia, thank you so much for your time today and sharing your stories. I think this is very valuable and hopefully is just playing, you know, maybe a small part to someone out there listening who can either share this with a friend or might be a type one themselves and might help them a little bit thrive a little bit more in the sport. So thank you so much. And we look forward to following you both this season. Thanks, y'all. Thanks so much for having me. The Iron Women Podcast wants to give a huge shout out to Orca Sportswear for their continued support in 2021. As someone who isn't a natural born swimmer, my choices for swim gear are super important. Orca has me ready to battle for every second I need in the water with the open water, triathlon, and swim run wetsuits. They also have safety buoys, goggles, cold water caps, and booties. You name it, they have it. The code IRONWOMEN15 will get you 15% off, so head to orca.com today and let's get ready to swim in 2021. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Lisa Ringerfield, co-founder of the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. We are really excited to announce that the Outspoken Summit will be returning in 2021. This year has created an opportunity for triathletes to get back in the blocks and start to rebuild triathlon to create a more inclusive and welcoming space for all. Join us from the 12th to the 14th of November as we host a virtual summit to connect with like-minded women, center women's equity in the sport, hear from industry leaders, and develop leadership skills related to our roles in triathlon. The summit will provide a rich forum to develop strong voices, inspire others, and advocate for change in the sport we love. For more information and to sign up for the event, go to OutspokenSummit.com. We hope to see you there. Okay, Alyssa, I'm really curious. What are your thoughts on non-diabetic athletes using continuous glucose monitors? Are you going to try one? Have you tried one? Haley, I definitely have not tried one. And it, to me, falls into one of those things where you're trying to like hack performance a little bit. And uh, I am just such a big believer in like the basics. And I know at least for myself personally, uh, I have a lot of other things I can improve upon and spend time on to improve before I ever needed to get to the point where I'm like looking for, you know, just really looking for something that small of an area, I feel like to like intervene to try and make better. Um, so I don't think I'm going to be, uh, you know, purchasing one anytime soon, but what about you? Have you ever tried one? I have not. And I, I, it's not something that, again, that's high on my list. I'm similar, similar position to you. I think there's other things I can improve before then. And actually I did look up how much they cost. I think that was something we weren't sure about if you, you know, if it's not covered by insurance, cause you're not a diabetic. And I think it was like $85 around or like $80 per, you know, per unit that lasts two weeks and not quite in my budget. Um, again, I, I am someone who, probably could use a nutrition help, but it's one of those things. Like I know, I know where my weaknesses are and I don't really need data to necessarily tell me (laughs) that some of my nutrition choices aren't really the best. I'm like, I know what I'm actively doing. Um, I definitely eat plenty of pizza. Um, and you know, it may not always be the perfect choice, but I I'm one that also will be like, it's better for me because I am not diabetic and I, you know, my body manages my blood sugar and insulin without, you know, without additional help, um, thankfully. And so I, you know, for me, it's more about making sure I am fueled enough, but I did, because we speak about these units while I was in Chamarin, we did do that dry blood spot testing, which I think is a similar, like you have to stick a thing on your arm, which is similar, like a little pinprick kind of thing. And so I was, I was nervous. It was going to hurt. 
And it actually didn't really hurt, but it is a weird, it's a weird sensation. Like you stick it in and then it's like, and then you just sit there and it's like blood drips down into like the little, like into like the little unit, but I'm glad they did doping control, but it was like, that was my first experience with it. I haven't gotten any results back, but, um, it only takes a couple minutes, but I was, and I know that uh, when we talked to, uh, you know, it was like Jocelyn, I think, um, earlier this year about it. And Laura Siddle, was it Laura Siddle about, about that testing earlier this year. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I hope, you know, I think the the hope is that we'll be able to do it on our own without like a person there watching, like, or you do it or maybe the person watches to like a screen. Um, and I, I definitely, I think maybe if I had a YouTube video that would like explain it to me, I could have done it, but I was glad there was a person there to like tell me I was, cause I was like, I don't know if I'm doing this right. Like they're like, just stick it on. And I'm like, ah, so that's the other thing with the continuous glucose monitor. I don't, I don't trust myself to like be able to do that correctly, but maybe with a YouTube video and some practice, maybe I could learn. Well, Haley, I am so glad you're back stateside. I am so glad you with your third place finish at the challenge championship. Congratulations. I hope you get all of the sleep and recovery this week. Drink all of the noon hydration and maybe uh, a beer or two as well to celebrate and then just, you know, keep getting as much sleep as you can. I look forward to catching up with you again next week, um, but definitely use this celebration week for all that you can. I will. I'm Alyssa's orders. I, I will for sure. Thanks so much. You have been listening to the Iron Women podcast hosted by Haley Chura and Alyssa Gadeski. Iron Women is a production of Live Feisty Media and is edited by Lindsay Glassford. Thank you to our sponsors, Noon Hydration, Prevenix, Zelio Skincare, Form Swim Goggles, and Orca Sportswear. You can find all websites and discount codes in our show notes at ironwomenpodcast.com.